So anyway, so we, we talked about how Abraham really, God comes to him and says, and, and I, be, I really believe God's basically saying, okay, your father failed me, he, he quit. Will, will you go on? You know, will, will you pick it up and go on? And Abraham does. And that's kind of where our story is so far. We talked about this last week in Genesis 12. He tell, comes to tell him, he says, look, if you get up and you go where I tell you to go, then I'm going to bless you. In fact, I'm going to not only bless you, I'm going to bless those who bless you. So it would be in the best interest of the people around you to bless you. And if they curse you, I will curse them. So I'm going I'm to really take a very, very tight uh, control over the situation to make sure that you're, you're okay. And I'm going to make you a great nation and, uh, and all the world's going to be blessed through you. That was the promise that God brought to Abraham. Now, at the time, Abraham is 75 years old. He's married to the same woman for about 50 years at this point, and they have no children. And the Bible's very clear. They don't have any children because she can't have them. And, uh, so, but, but Abraham stayed faithful to her and does not take on a second wife. He's kind of watching his dream die, and God shows up and says, I'll not only give you a child, I'll make you a great nation. And Abraham believes and takes off. Now, the reason Abraham is so important and why we're going into this is because Abraham is actually a pattern for our lives. And I'm not saying Abraham didn't live because he did. But the things that end up in the Bible, I believe, are put there because he actually, God's using Abraham's life. What Abraham lived physically, we live spiritually. And so the things we see in Abraham's life, we're actually going through. And a lot of things you'll see Abraham do and do wrong even, we do and we do wrong. And I believe God is kind of giving us an idea. This is a lesson of faith. This is how you walk a life of faith. We, that's why they call Abraham the father of faith. And so Abraham is kind of this pattern for our lives, uh, also called sometimes a paradigm, if you like those kind of words. Uh, but anyway, so he's, he's kind of a pattern for us. And so he's, he's going to uh, show us what's capable and what's possible. Now, there is uh, a little bit of a debate over this, but I believe, and I said last week, that Abraham was faithful and heard God as in God Jehovah. Uh, there are those who believe that before God approached Abraham, he was an idol worshiper, and uh, specifically the moon god, because in Haran, where they lived, that was the, the deity that they, that they worshipped. And where they go to get this is in Joshua. Now, what's happening in Joshua, he, this is a thousand years later, but Joshua's bringing the Israelites back to re-enter the promised land, uh, and he gives them a history lesson before they go in. And so in Joshua, he's like telling them, here's what we're doing. Actually, this is actually going in there, but he's kind of summing up in Joshua 24. And he's telling the people, thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, who was Abraham's father, the father of Abraham, dwelt on the other side. He stopped. He quit. He dwelt on the other side. And they served other gods. So he's saying, I, I need you to understand, they quit. They quit on the other side. All of them did. And they served other gods. They, they worshiped other gods. But notice Joshua never says Abraham does. I don't believe Abraham ever did. I know there are some who says, well, if his father worshipped them, he must have worshipped them. But I don't believe so. I believe one of the reasons that God chose Abraham was because he's like, I'm out on this moon god thing. You know, somebody created the moon, I'm out. And there must be something greater than that. I just think there's something in his heart he knew. And so uh, he's saying, I took father Abraham from the other side and brought him all the way into here. And this was, you know, he's, he's giving a history lesson now. So that's where they get it from. But I honestly believe that his father did, obviously Joshua says that it must be true, and this is, you know, it's history for them, but not ancient, ancient history, maybe, you know, 800 years before. So they knew what they were talking about. His father was definitely an idol worshiper, no question. But the Bible never says Abraham was. And I don't believe Abraham ever was. And I, I say this because I think it's important for us to understand that we have choices to make. The same way that Abraham had a choice to make, we have a choice to make.
because there is this thing called generational iniquity. And the Bible talks about, in fact, God says it's a thing where if you disobey and you sin, that you pass that sin down to the next generation and actually many generations deep. So, so your iniquity will be carried over and so will your blessings. And so you have a choice. And I believe Abraham had a choice to make. We can choose not to be the descendant of idol worshipers. Instead, we can be ancestors of the faithful. You get that choice. Just because you have a long line of people who've made the wrong choice, you have ancestors who keep making the wrong choice, that doesn't mean you have to. And, and also, the, the other side, that's true too. Just because you have a long line of people who made the right choice doesn't mean you're automatically going to. You still have that choice to make. You can say, look, I'm going to be like my dad. You know, and I know a lot of people who believe they are, and they almost feel like it's fate. My dad was a drunk. I'm a drunk. That's all I can do. You know, I, I hear people tell me things like this. Well, I can't do anything more than this. It's in my genes. It's in my blood. There's nothing I can do. You have a choice. You can say, you know what? I'm breaking it here. I'm breaking this generational iniquity right here, right now. I'm choosing not to do that. I'm choosing to live by faith. And so you can break that. And then you become an ancestor then of the faithful. And I believe that's something we, we're, we're being told through the story of Abraham because I believe that's what he did. I think he made a decision. I'm not doing this. I'm not worshiping the moon god. I'm not doing it. I don't think he knew what he was going to do, but that's why God showed up. So I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to worship the real God, and I'm going to make you a great nation because of your heart. And so he did. Now, God will always come, and he, but he calls us out of the world. The same way he called Abraham, he says, look, I need you to leave your father's house. You can see why. His father's an idol worshiper. Get out of there. You stay there, it's going to be bad news. Get out of there. Leave the land. Everybody around you is idol worshipers. Get out of there. Go where I send you. He's calling him out of the world. The same way God's calling you out of the world as well. And you have that choice. You have the choice to say, you know what? Enough's enough. I'm not going to live for the world anymore. I'm going to live for the almighty God. I'm going to live for the living God. I'm going to take a step out of that. I'm not going to keep doing this. That's the choice. It's always the choice. God says, I'm going to call you out. But sometimes that means we have to walk away from things that seem like good things. They seem like good things. And in fact, they seem like the kind of things that we want out of our lives. You know, we're watching the people around us. We're looking at their Instagram feed, hashtag blessed, hashtag winning. And we're saying, I want that. That looks okay to me. I don't mind having a house here in Haran. That house in Haran looks pretty nice. I kind of like that life. That's, that's not so bad. And okay, so if I have to hang around people who worship the moon god, uh, then I'll do that. And so you have that choice to settle, settle short of the promise or say, no, I think I'm going to have to go beyond this. Because really the dream in Haran isn't so different than the American dream. And the American dream is very seductive. You know, I know, I live here. I know what it's like. I, I, like I said, I don't have a good house, but I can see one from my driveway. You know, I, I, can, I can know what that feeling is. And you look and say, you know what, maybe, wow. And so sometimes you said, you, 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 God's coming, but he's calling you out. And he's basically saying, look, are you willing to walk away from the American dream in order to walk into God's promise. Are you willing to make that deal? Now, God doesn't always call people out of the American dream. Sometimes he gives them a house. But are you willing to give it all up? And that's really what it comes to. Because you can't settle in Haran and be okay. You think you can. It's a small compromise. It's so close to the promised land, I can see it from here. But when you settle short, what you've done is you've compromised with sin, but you can't because sin has a moral gravitational pull. It starts pulling you, and you will end up being pulled into it. It's just, it's just the way it works. 
The devil doesn't mind you compromising with him. He loves you compromising with him. He'll always compromise with you. Because compromising with the devil is like just drinking a little poison. It's still going to kill you. It just takes longer. So the devil will make that compromise. He's happy to do it. He's happy to pull you in. So um, anyway, I'm going to now pick up the story of what, what happens when Abraham takes the stand. He says, you know what? I'm out. I'm leaving dad. Notice he takes nobody with him. Nobody goes with him. His dad doesn't go with him. He has a daddy. He has a brother. They have family. They have everything. The only person he takes is Lot. And the reason he takes Lot, he's his nephew, is because Lot's father is dead. And no one wants him, to be honest. And so Abraham takes him. I'll take him. And they all pack up and they leave. And so we pick up the story now in Genesis 12. So Abraham went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with them. Abraham was 75 years old. Now, you know, he is 75. He's, he's seen 75 years come and go. Uh, but that is kind of like around 40-ish in terms of vitality because he's going to live a lot longer than, than, than we live. So uh, he took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they accumulated, and they set out for the land of Canaan. That's very important, Canaan. And we're going to talk more about that in a minute, but he's setting out to Canaan. That is the promised land. That's where God is taking them. And they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moriah and Shechem. I have no idea where that is. I wish I could tell you the great tree and have a picture of it. I don't have a picture of it. But the Bible was saying, this is as far as he went. He went into Canaan to this place. And then it says something very, very weird. Now, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And you might be thinking, okay, so where else were the Canaanites be? <laughs> so we're, we're in Canaan. It's like, okay. So it's like, I'm traveling to Italy, and it turns out Italians are there. Wow, what a shock. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, going on to, I'm going to go on to, to India, and there's Indians there. This is a surprise. And the Bible says, yeah, they went to Canaan, and, and it turns out that uh, Canaanites were in Canaan. Why in the world would the Bible bother to tell us that little detail? We kind of figure that's where the Canaanites were, right? They went to Canaan, that's where they'd be. Well, the reason they're telling us that is they want you to understand it's not empty. Canaan is not empty land. In fact, it's full of Abraham's enemies. The Canaanites were sworn enemies of Abraham. That might seem weird because they're coming from the same lines, but something happened way, way, way back in Noah's day that put these two tribes against each other. Canaan was the name of Noah's grandson, and he did something very evil. And I'm, I'm going to reference the, what, the end of this. I'm not going to reference the whole, the whole thing because it's really kind of weird. And, and frankly, the ancient Hebrew text here is a little bit cloudy to scholars today. We're not exactly sure exactly what happened, but we know the final result of it. The final result of it, when Noah finds out what happened, he knew what his youngest son had done. He said, cursed be Canaan. That was his grandson. He cursed him. A servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He says, you're going to be the slave to your brothers. He's, that's, that's the curse. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Now that's Abraham's line. And let Canaan be his servant. So it was a curse and a prophecy. Noah cursed him, and Canaan turns in as a really bad guy, and his descendants are really evil. He curses him. He says, one day you will be the servant of Shem's descendants. Guess what Abraham is? He is a descendant of Shem. And he shows up in Canaan. They're not going to like this. They're not going to like this one little bit. Uh-uh. You're not going to come here. And, and if, they had knew, if they knew that actually he was there because God told him to go there, they'd like it even less. 
So they're like sworn enemies of him. Now, Canaanites went on to become very, very evil, wicked people. How bad were they? They were so bad that the Bible had to put stuff in to protect other people from them. They were evil and depraved and wicked. This was probably the worst place on earth as far as morality goes. I mean, this is one of those things where later they'd make Sodom and Gomorrah look good. You know, they were really evil, wicked people. And they have found ancient art from the Canaanites period from this time. And they celebrate their perversions in all their art. But one thing in particular God really got upset with, and this is probably going to upset you too. And we see this, uh, he's talking about them here uh, all the way, because they, they stick around for a long time. Uh, and, and he's actually talking about them. He says, because they, and he's talking about Canaanites here, have forsaken me, because they start out in the same bloodline, right? But they forsook them. They made this an alien place because they have burned incense to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers ever knew. They filled this place with the blood of the innocents. Watch this. They built the high places of Baal. That's their God. They're the ones who came up Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal. They literally made their children walk into fires called fire walking. They burned children to satisfy Baal, who was the god of uh, the, the harvest, which I didn't command, speak, and never even entered my mind. God says, I, I don't want any parts of this. It's never even entered my mind to do such an evil, wicked thing. There's actually a law that Moses had to put in place to stop Israelites from doing this because they started copying. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being such a depraved society that you literally would sacrifice your children to the God? of the world. Actually, I can because I, I've watched adults do it. <laughs> not like this, you know, not in a formal ceremony. But, you know, we've all heard those stories about a mom who left their kids in a car while she goes into a bar to get a drink or a fix or whatever else and the children froze to death in the car. You know, we've heard these stories. So we've seen that. Well, what's that? That's sacrifice your children. You don't care about them in order to go get your own pleasure. But there's other parents who do the same thing. They just don't do it so directly. You know, they, they ditch their children so they can go out and have an affair. They ditch their children so they can go out and get, you know, whatever they, they're needing. And that's all that is, is you're just simply putting the, the, the sin of the flesh ahead of your own children and not caring where they are. So there's a lot of parents who have made that choice. There's parents who make a choice on the other side. You know, there's parents who won't be here tomorrow with their children because they've taken them to soccer or hockey or swimming or basketball. Well, what is that? That's just, a, and, and I've talked to them and they said, well, you know, friendships are important at this age. Really? Because I got to tell you something, I played ball with the kids in my neighborhood. I don't even know them anymore. You know, we, were, we weren't friends by high school, you know? And so like, well, you know, friendships are really, really important. You know, those, those little league friendships stay with you forever. No, they don't, they really don't. And are you going to say it's more important than friendship with God? Because I'm going to kind of challenge that. And, and you're, you're raising them to say, uh, yeah, we can ditch church to go to hockey games. What does it tell them? That's telling them that God called hockey is more important than God called Jehovah. It's all that is. And so uh, this is not so different. The only difference is they're honest about it. They're making the parents realize this is what we're doing. Uh, you know, we're better at hiding it in America. And, you know, we make the parents make this decision, and parents do. But we don't tell them this decision they're making. We make it sound like it's something Good. So that's the Canaanites. They're evil, they're wicked, they're perverted, and they hate Shemitic people. And Abraham has just showed up because God sent him there. And so then the Lord appears to Abraham. He gets there because God sent him there. He shows up at Canaan. The Lord appears to him and says, 
listen, to your offspring, I will give this land. To your offspring, I will give this land. So watch what he does. He builds an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there on, he went on towards the hills east of Bethel. Bethel, by the way, if you break that word up in Hebrew, means God's house, the house of God. So he goes on to east hills of Bethel and he pitches tent there with Bethel on one side and Ai on the other. That's Ai, not Ai. This is an artificial intelligence, different. There he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And then Abraham set out and continued to Negev. Now what he's doing, he's doing a little tiny, you know, surrounding the whole area that's going to be his. He's, he's like touring his new house. <laughs> and he's going all these places. And he's going, and he's, he's going to go ahead and pitch tents. And he builds altars. And listen, the thing is, God says, I'm going to give this land to your offspring. But notice the Bible went out of its way as it tells the Canaanites are there. I'm giving you this land, but your enemies are still here. That almost doesn't seem fair, right? Because God, if you want to give me this land, could you just get rid of the Canaanites first? I want to walk into a land where there are no enemies. I want to march up to Chapel Drive and find nothing there. That's what I want. I don't want enemies. Can, can you take care of them for me, Lord? Blow them away so I don't have to look at the enemies? That's what I want. I want to walk in clean and free. I want to do that. But God does never, is, never does that. He doesn't do it now. He won't do it later. And he's not doing it for us up at Chapel Drive. He just doesn't do that. You know, we should know this because when he first starts everything, he talks to the original men and woman, and he tells them this is, go ahead, be fruitful, increase, and fill the earth and subdue it. It's like our job to go subdue the land. And he never takes that job away. He never does. It's our job to go in. He gives it to us, but we have to possess it. That's the thing. We must possess the land of the promise. It's promised. I'm giving it to you. God owns everything. You know, he's the one who owns the deed to the property. It's like he's saying, I have this property here. I'm going to give it to you. And there's interlopers in there. And you need to get rid of them. Kick them out. They don't belong there. This is, this is your land now. It's yours. Get rid of them. You have to get rid of them. But God, can't you please get rid of them for us? And he never, ever, ever does that. In fact, um, in, in Genesis, oh, I'm sorry, God works with us, but it always happens slower than we want. God does it, but he does it slower than we want it to. And we should see this again because he tells them later in Deuteronomy. He actually tells them flat out. He doesn't tell Abraham this, but he's telling them this when they come back. He says, look, you shall not dread them. Don't worry about your enemies. For the Lord your God is in your midst and he's great and he's an awesome God. Don't worry about them. They're pipsqueaks. You serve an awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. Wow. Why? That almost doesn't seem fair. And watch, you will not be able to put an end to them quickly. God's promising you this is going to take some time. And then he says this, because the wild beasts would grow too numerous for you. If they're like gone, you'd have to fight off lions and tigers and bears, oh my. And so instead of having this gone and you have to fight something else or starting to get these out quickly and something else comes in that you don't see, I'm going to make them go out little by little because what's going to happen is you're going to grow. And as you grow, you're going to get better. You're going to become better soldiers. You're going to become better fighters. And as you start moving, you're better able to handle what's coming. I actually think the wild beasts, God isn't referring to lions and tigers. I think he's talking about demons and strongholds. I believe he's literally saying, I need you to get to a point where you can trust me, where you've been through some battles with me, so you understand how this works, so that when the next thing comes at you, the next wave, you're ready for it. 
I believe he's growing people to be ready for the next wave of attacks because you have two kinds of enemies in the world. You know, you have to understand this. You have, a, you have enemies that you can see and enemies you can't see. You have physical enemies and you have spiritual enemies. And I believe God's saying, I'm not going to just blow out the physical enemy and then let you have to face the spiritual enemy. You're not ready for them yet. But your Lord God will deliver them before you and will throw them into the great confusion until they're all destroyed. Don't worry, God says, I got a plan. You're going to have to work with me on this. Stick with me. Stay faithful. We're going to take care of it. I told you I'm giving it to you. I'm not going to stop until it's yours. But you need to walk through. Otherwise, the wild beasts are going to take you. I'm not going to let that happen. God will not allow problems we see to be replaced by those we don't. You're not ready for those yet. I've got other things in mind. Okay. So now I want to go back and I want to take a look at something that we kind of blipped over but it's really, really important because remember, Abraham is our image of faith. You want to live a life of faith? Look at Abraham. Abraham's what, what we look at, and we see three things that Abraham does. There's like a three-part plan of faith here. It almost goes by so fast you miss it, so I'm going to stop on it. But there's three things about Abraham, and you'll watch this. It's the truth throughout his entire life. This is a pattern you'll see over and over and over again. Therefore, whenever the Bible repeats itself, it's important. This is something we need to add to our life because the very first thing you see in Abraham's life is a tent. He goes there, he left a house, he traded it for a tent. He goes into the promised land and he he sets up a tent. He set up his tent there. Now, why does he set up his tent there? Well, he says he set up his tent there because part of Abraham, remember, he's he's a pattern for us. It's saying Abraham's there because he knows that's not really where he needs to be. See, there's another land for Abraham. It won't be on this earth. There's a land he's going to go to one day where his palace is, his mansion is. He's there now, but it's never going to be on this earth. And so as symbolizing that, he will always be, when he's on earth, he always has a tent. He's always moving because at any moment, God said, I need you to move to there. I need you to go there. I need you to go there. Yep, he picks up and he moves because this is not the land. And we actually see that the author of Hebrews tells us that. Watch this. By faith, Abraham made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. I like the King James Version. The stranger in a strange land. Um, like a stranger in a strange land. He lived in tents, as will Isaac and Jacob, who were his heirs, for he was looking towards the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. He's there in a tent because he knows this isn't his home. This is the promised land. This is where he'll spend his life. But he knows there's, his real home isn't here. His real home is when he comes home to be with the Lord, when he sees the city with the architect of God. There's a story that um, I've heard told several times in several different ways. I think this is the right one. This really happened, but you know how stories are. So the story is that a missionary was coming home. Uh, from. He's been on his his mission field for a long time. He's been recalled. This is in the early 1900s. And um, so he's coming home on, on an ocean liner. And as it turns out, Teddy Roosevelt's coming back from a hunting trip on the same ocean liner. For those of you who remember when Teddy Roosevelt was president, that man went hunting. He didn't care. He went to Africa, the president. Go to Africa and go hunting, right? Uh, so as it turns out that when they dock in New York, uh, Teddy Roosevelt steps up and waves to everybody. And there's this huge crowd that's gathered there because the president of the United States just came home for the hunting trip. 
he's alive. Uh, and so everybody's happy. They have a band there and they have press and there's people cheering, you know. And uh, so he waves and then uh, he kind of goes down the gangplank and they start playing his, his song. And then he goes up to get his motorcade and the whole parade kind of follows down the street as, as Teddy Roosevelt and the whole thing moves away, you know. And of course, no one's allowed to leave the boat until the president of the United States gets off of it. So they're all sitting there watching this. And the, um, the missionary is sitting there with his 10-year-old boy. And uh, this whole thing goes, and the boy takes all this in. And then it's kind of time for everybody else to kind of move down the gangplank. And the boy looks at his, his dad and says, uh, where's our band? <laughs> He's like looking. He says, we don't, we don't have a band. He says, we don't have a band? He goes, no, son, we don't, we don't have one. He says, well, are we going to get a parade? He says, no, son, we don't, we don't get a parade. He says, why not? And his dad says, because we're not home yet. This is the thing, you see, that, that, that Abraham knew. We're not, I'm not home yet. And if we don't catch the fact that God wants us in tents with the ten pigs kept shallow, we're going to miss the fact that what he's telling us is, whatever happens here, this isn't your home. And if you start sitting in, you know, your, your foundations of your home and you start building roots, before you know it, you'll be worshiping the moon god because that's what everybody around you is doing. This isn't your home. You're not home yet. You're going to get home, and then there's going to be a parade, and there's going to be a celebration like you can't understand. It's going to blow you away when you get there. That's later, though. Right now, we're still here on earth, and we have work to do while we're still here on earth. So we understand that he's in a tent, and he will always be in a tent. In fact, the only time Abraham's not in a tent, bad things are happening in his life. We'll get to there in the next sermon, because bad things will happen when he's not in a tent. When he's in a tent, everything's going well. That's how you can know Abraham's life. The second thing that he did, which you may have caught, is he set up an altar. He didn't just build one altar, he built two. He gets to the first place, God shows up, and, yes, and he builds an altar. And then he goes over to Bethel, and he builds an altar there. And he goes to the next place, he builds an altar there. He's building an altar all the time. He doesn't build a house, but he's building altars. Why? He's always building those altars. Why? There's a reason. There's a reason why Abraham's doing it. There's a reason why you should do it. Because the altar is important in your life. It needs to be important in your life because three things happen at the altar. The three things that happen is, first of all, it's a place of redemption. Now, in those days, they actually made sacrifices. You know, they sacrificed animals for redemption. We don't need to do that anymore because of Jesus. But you still go to the altar for redemption, right? We call it prayer and asking for forgiveness. So you still come to the altar in order to pray to God and ask for redemption. The other thing you do is it's a place for prayer in general. And we see that. We see that God, he calls on the name of the Lord. And, and I'm going to get back to that point in a minute. But it's a place of prayer in your life. And thirdly, it's a place where the fire falls. It's a place where God comes with his power. And, and, and we see this. This isn't just Elijah. You know, famously, Elijah has this big thing of fire falls. The fire comes to David, too. There's other places that we see the fire come. And this is the altar. You need to have one of these in your life. You need to have this thing. And, and Abraham said, well, if I'm here now, I'm going to build an altar here. And I'm going to move my tent over there. I'm going to build an altar over there because I need it close. I need to be close to an altar. But what he's saying is I need to be close to a place that's special to me, not to God, to me, where I'm going to call out to God. I'm going to ask for forgiveness and God's going to reply. I need to have that in my life. We don't. We just don't. We, don't. we don't think in these terms. In fact, it occurs to me, we don't even have an altar in this church. Something we need to fix in the next place. Not that it's special to God. God's not big on high places. You'll see him always discourage those. 
but because they're special to us. A place where we go where we get, we get serious with God. That's what the altar is. And that doesn't matter. It could be a closet in your house. It could be a chair in your house. But that's my prayer chair. And when I'm sitting in that chair, it's for one purpose and one purpose. I don't put my shoes on in that chair. I don't read my laptop in that chair. The only reason I sit in that chair is to pray to God. It doesn't matter. It could be a pillow that I kneel on. And I put it down and kneel on it before I pray. There's something that tells me and tells my body and my emotions and my soul, it's time to get serious with God. I'm going to get serious with God right now. This is where I do that. This is the place where I get serious with God. Now, you can call to God anywhere, and God will hear you anywhere. There's nothing special about this except it tells you, I'm going to get serious here. I, for a while, and I need to get back to this, used to get on my knees to pray. And I stopped when I got older. It got harder to get on my knees. It's so easy to get down. It's just harder to get up. But I used to do that because it just made me more serious about it. You know, focus me a little bit. It's not that God hears you better on your knees. It's not that there's something special about it. But that was a way that I could actually focus. You know, it's a really bad prayer for me, lying on my back in bed before I go to sleep. Although that's my most common prayer. I'll fall asleep. That's not good. I'm not serious with God there, right? What Abraham's saying is, I'm serious about this. I'm here because God sent me, and I need to be able to talk to him. He needs to be able to talk to me, and I need to be able to make sure I'm right with him. And this is, I'm, ser- I'm building an altar because I'm serious about it. And that's a very important part of our faith. If we don't take our, our, our time with God seriously, then we're not going to stay focused. And Abraham knew, I'm, I'm surrounded by my enemies here. I'm surrounded by a bunch of people who do not want to see anybody from Shem here. And here I am in the middle of them. There's nobody else around. My dad's gone. He's way over there. My brother's over there. Nobody here to help me. I got one person who can help me, and that's God. I want to make sure I can communicate with him. I want to stay serious about that. And the third thing he does, and this is so, so, so important, is he calls on the name of the Lord. That's actually how the Bible described it. It didn't say, and he prayed on the altar. He called upon the name of the Lord. What does that mean? It means what it sounds like. It means he's going to his altar and he's saying, oh, great God of heaven, you are wonderful and magnificent. You are the great I am. You are the beginning and the end. You have created everything. You are the most awesome and magnificent God there is. He's calling out the glory of God. You are Jehovah Jireh. You do provide. You've taken care of me. You are a great God. He's saying out loud at the top of his lungs. He is calling out the name of the Lord. And the name of the Lord is like the names of God. Where he's actually going through all the attributes of God and naming them. Why in the world would he do that? Well, let me ask you this. How in the world is he doing it? He's surrounded by his enemies. He's surrounded by his enemies, and they serve other gods. And he's come into their middle, in the midst of them, and said, my God is God. Anybody can hear him is not happy. He's not in there quietly. He's not sneaking in so he can sneak out and nobody knows he's there. He is calling on the name of the Lord. He's letting everybody know, this is my God, Jehovah, the great God of heaven, the living God. He's my God. No one else, he is. Now, this is what we call world-changing faith. Because if you have the courage to, in the midst and the presence of your enemies, declare God's goodness, not like, oh, he's going to destroy you all because he's a great God. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, my God is great and good. And you all can kill me if you want, but that doesn't change the fact that my God is great and good. He's calling on the name of the Lord. That's all he's doing. 
He's putting all his faith on who God is, not who he is. Who God is. That's what he's doing. He's calling on the name of the Lord. See, as I said before, you have two kinds of enemies. You have physical and you have spiritual. And even if your physical enemies can't hear this, your spiritual enemies do. The devil cannot read your mind. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us the devils or demons can read your mind. God can, but they cannot. But boy, they can hear what you proclaim with your lips. And so what Abraham is doing is he's calling out the greatness of God and he's putting all the false gods on notice that the real God has just showed up. And he is a servant of the real God. And this place right here that has a tent and an altar is about to become a stronghold for the high king of heaven because he sent him there and he will make it that way. He is telling every demon around, you're done because the high king of heaven sent me here and he's here too. And my God is great. And if we don't understand the power of declaring God in the presence of our enemies, we'll never understand the power of God. Because the Bible's full of references about how the enemies are surrounding us and what you need to do is declare the name of the Lord. In Psalms, Psalmist was big on this. David talked about it all the time. I mean, he talks about this more than once. In Psalm 31, because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbors. I'm an object of dread to my closest friends. Everybody around probably is probably, you could, Abraham can say all this except for the friends part because he doesn't have any. Everybody hates him because of his enemies. Those who see me on the street flee from me. No one's even be associated with this guy. He's like, he's like a leper. I am forgotten as though I were dead. I have become like broken pottery. For I hear many whispering terror on every side. Like he's done. He's going to be attacked from every side. They conspire against me and plot to take my life. But I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. I don't care what they say. You are my God. See, some Christians will save the fear their whole lives because they can never declare the greatness of God. I think there are some Christians who've lived their entire lives as Christians and they have never audibly declared the greatness of their God. Never. It's never left their lips. They can't even do it. You know, forget in the presence of your enemies. Christians can't do it inside of the church walls. There's a lot of people who could not possibly loudly declare the greatness of God here in Spirit Chapel or anywhere. Can't do it. Just can't get the mouths open. And I know it's like, guys, we're like, men don't do that stuff. Yeah, it's okay for women to raise their hands and stuff. They want to get all emotional and cry, let them go ahead. Men don't do that, though. You know, we're taught. We're dignified. You would never catch guys raising their hands and screaming, would you? Would that ever happen? Yeah, guys would never raise their hand and scream, right? That would never happen. Men don't do that. No, we do it for the gods of this world. And then they'll go play for the Raiders or the Jets or whoever. We'll, we'll shout their names. We'll scream their glory. We'll raise our hands and tell them how great they are. But the High King of Heaven? Oh, no. Can't do that. Forget the presence of our enemies. We can't do it in the presence of our friends. We will never know the power that comes 
from praising, the, praising God in the presence of our enemies if we don't get used to praising God. It's got to be normal for us. I remember when I was a kid, um, <laughs> you know, I was a preacher's kid, right? And, and I'll never forget this. I was playing, I was playing um, Little League. And this, we, were, we were done. You know, we were, we're down several runs, ninth inning. And, you know, we had to play the kids that we had. And, and we had some kid up there. He, he, the poor kid, you know, like I said last week, bless his heart, he couldn't hit at all. You know, he, he was a horrible player. And he was who we have up there, you know. And so we're praying for a walk, you know, like, or hit him. If the pitcher could just hit him with a pitch, you know, we could get past him. We got the front of, front of our batting order coming up. And, you know, we stand a chance. And two outs and everything else. And there's little kids up there, you know, and I don't even know how, but the ball came in and he swung in the strangest thing. And, and by golly, he connected, you know, and that ball <laughs> just went over the first baseman's head and hit the, you know, thing. And, and everybody was stunned. And, and uh, the, my, my coach is shouting at him, run, you know, because he never hit the ball in his life. You know, he throws the bat down and he starts running, you know. And I'll never forget because I jumped up and shouted, hallelujah. You know, it was like it just came out because I'm a preacher's kid. It's just like, hallelujah. And my coach cracked up. He thought that was so funny. At the time, I was embarrassed, you know. <laughs> but what's wrong with that, you know? That's all I knew. That's all I knew. I was a preacher's kid. I grew up in church. Hallelujah. That's all I knew to say. But it should be a natural thing to us. You know, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But we can't. We can't declare the greatness of God. No wonder we're getting our butts kicked. We don't even... We can't even shout for our king. We can't, you know, bring up ourselves to do that. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with this. I'm just going to show you this really, really important thing. And, and, and I've talked about this before. I preached a whole sermon on this. I'm going to just touch on it. The psalmist puts it this way. Out of the mouths of children and infants, you establish a stronghold against your enemies. That's in Psalm 8.2. Now, the reason this psalm is important to me and why it caught my attention was because Jesus misquotes it. Sorry, Jesus quotes it, and he, says, he doesn't say it this way. And I'll never forget the first time I saw that. It really kind of bothered me. I was a young Christian, and I came across that. How can Jesus misquote a psalm? How can he get it wrong? <laughs> Especially when you get old and you realize, wait a minute, he wrote the psalm. If he wrote the psalm, how can he get it wrong? You know, how can the author misquote his own material? And then later on, it, I, it occurred to me that Jesus wasn't misquoting it. He was helping us understand it. Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. What's amazing to me, by the way, he says this to Pharisees who are supposed to know the scriptures, and they back down. Like, oh, I have even heard that song before. It's like they never heard it before. They don't even challenge them. You'd think somebody, you didn't quote that right, but no. They're like, oh, okay. You know, he like really gets it because Jesus looks back to this psalm that was written by David. And David's just one of great victories. He says, out of the mouths of children and infants, in other words, when it's perfect, before people corrupt it, and before they get all hung up and stuff, you established the stronghold against your enemies. You know, you brought it forth from the children, is what he's saying. You can, you can establish strength from anywhere, even from children and infants. And Jesus says, well, that was kind of right, but let me tweak that a little bit. Let me give you a, you know, David's like taking dictation from heaven, and he got the translation a little imprecise. Let me, let me add a layer to that, Jesus says, so you really understand what he was saying and what I'm saying, because he tells it to, this is what happens is during Palm Sunday, famously, they're, they're calling Jesus Lord, you know, they're calling him Hosanna, which is God with us. And, and the Pharisees come and say, tell them to shut up. Don't you hear what they're saying? And Jesus says, yeah, I hear them. Have you never read? And he quotes, out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. You have made a stronghold. You have perfected praise. See, Jesus isn't contradicting. He's adding. He's saying, here's what you need to understand. 
When praise comes, my presence comes. When my presence comes, you have a stronghold. See, Abraham is in the middle of the promised land, but he's surrounded by enemies. All who want to kill him. All he has is a tent. But praise will turn that tent into a stronghold. That's why he's doing it. That's why along with the tent, he builds an altar. And on that altar, he cries out to the Lord. He calls out the Lord's name. Because he knows, all I have is a tent. But if I have God show up in that tent, the enemy cannot take this. This is the thing that we have to understand. We're walking faith. God calls us out of the world, we have to leave it. And we have to understand, once we leave it, we can't go back. That's why we're in a tent. And everywhere we go, we have to have a special place where we can call it out to God. A special place we can pray to Him, where we can get right with Him, and we can hear Him speak to us. And then we have to praise His name. Because when God comes in His presence, He comes with His power. The question is, who are you spending your time calling out to? Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I...